Welcome to RMIT. Welcome to Knowledge Weekend, I would like to uh, claim. And welcome to the future audience. Uh, just a little bit of uh, promotion. Uh, our sponsors this evening are the Master of Design Futures from RIT, but also uh, Design Service, Service Design Melbourne and Design Thinking Asia. Design Thinking Asia is predominantly the group that we will be streaming to this evening. Um, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, owners of the land on which RMIT stands, and pay respect to their elders past and present. That statement is particularly pertinent this evening in the context of Melbourne Knowledge Week and what that is and what that means for the oldest continuous culture on the planet. I think that really when we begin to consider the idea of what we do in a, an age which is more about knowledge distribution than anything else, and the movement of information through various and multiple channels, one of the things which I think uh, we need to consider within this is we need to really begin to look and seek for new strategies on how we deal with the movement of that knowledge. And we cannot rely on ideas that are perhaps 100 or 200 years old in order to deliver the effectiveness of the messages that we need to deliver. We obviously need to begin to take advantage of the platforms and the structures and the technologies that we have, but I'm not so sure that this is just an issue about the design of the device or the design and the implementation of the technologies that we have at hand. I think, and we think, <laughs> and I'm sure you think, that there is a different way of delivering this message by engaging with design in many different forms. And our agenda this evening is really to begin to engage with a series of panellists who do this on a daily basis and to really begin to understand how the cultural institutions that we hold dear to ourselves, such as the State Library, the NGV, the ABC and ACME, how they're actually working through and struggling with these propositions on a daily basis, often with the help of people like Dan Hill from Arab. One of the critical things that uh, I'd like to begin to address this evening is how we're actually adapting the nature of our institutions through engaging design in various forms in order so we're actually begin to address the nature of a future audience. Not necessarily the one that we have currently and not necessarily the one which is in the immediate future. As we know, and many of you in this room are entirely aware of, the ideas of design thinking, the notions of human-centred design, are really begin to surge now within our community. Business is suddenly understood that having a designer at the boardroom table might be useful. And beginning to understand how from banks to health organisations to community services to government the ways in which design is actually playing an impact in each of these areas, and often quite silently, is one of the things that we would like to begin to interrogate and explore this evening. One of the other things we're interesting is, well, why is this happening now? Why has it taken us this long to get round to this idea that design can be useful in different constructs? 
And how is it that we might be able to communicate the power and the impact of design in various different ways? So this evening we'll, we'll try to unpack a little bit of that. Um, unfortunately, um, Justine Hyde uh, from the State Library of uh, Victoria uh, is unable to join us. She has a child with a broken arm as in, in fact, and is in fact right now engaging with the service design of the children's hospital up the road. Uh, she may be joining us if it's only a sprain, uh, but we'll, we'll see how we go. Um, certainly uh, Dan Hill um, is with us. Dan is the Associate Director at Arup UK and has been instrumental in the development of strategic design through many things, uh, including his long-running blog, City of Sound, and spending far too much time in Australia. Uh, Ewan McEwen at the other end is the Hugh D.T. Williamson Senior Curator of Contemporary Design and Architecture at the National Gallery of Victoria. And I'm sure all of you uh, are aware of the incredible uh, energy that's currently centered around the NGV in all its forms. Uh, Seb Chan was the designer behind the way in which the Cooper Hewitt in New York City, engages its visitors, and, and now we've managed to lure him back to Melbourne with the title of Chief Experience Officer, uh, with the X as a capital, apparently, um, at Acme. <laughs> uh, and, and to my immediate left, we're joined by Priscilla Davies, who's an experience researcher at the ABC. Um, one of my opening discussions was going to be around the notion of the library, uh, and certainly, as we all know, uh, the team that Justine and Kate are leading um, up there, which is really beginning to interrogate the nature of the redevelopment of the library and how that begins to really drive into a completely different understanding of how a new $100 million facility without books is beginning to really suggest a different way of us thinking about one of these cultural institutions. So to begin with, I'm, I might actually move into Dan. Um, and Dan, of course, has done a substantial amount of work at the State Library of Queensland. Uh, and really what I'm interested to begin to pull out from him is perhaps how the movements within the digital realm are in fact impacting on the ways in which the physical realm is being used. Dan. Um, yeah, so I was working with the State Library of Queensland probably just after they redeveloped architecturally. So the State Library building, for those of you who don't know, Brisbane, is sort of a 1980s building originally, I think, by Robin Gibson and Donovan Hill Peddlethorpe did this kind of extraordinary architectural reinvention of it, um, opening it up to the city in all kinds of interesting ways and making something that was if you like, a traditional grand civic library experience, almost deliberately, uh, into something that spoke to Brisbane in a very different way, looking at the architecture of Brisbane and being a very domestic architecture and bringing elements of that into the library, including putting flock wallpaper in areas of it and uh, living rooms and so on. And it was, it was immediately interesting to me to then follow that line of thinking around digital. And it was and also entirely accidental, I should point out. I was there on holiday, my wife's from Brisbane, and we were hanging out on the South Bank there, and I started noticing the vast numbers of people using, um, this is 2008, 9, I guess, 2008, 
using what were called netbooks, if you remember those at the time, which was sort of pre-tablet, kind of small computer that was kind of handbag size, basically, and laptops and things. And they were sort of crawling all over it in a really lovely way. And I started taking pictures of it, um, again, on holiday, uploading to Flickr, um, a popular photo sharing site, but it used to be popular. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I got an email from someone at the library saying, why are you taking pictures of my library? And uh, that turned out to be one called Tori Jones, who was, I think, director of strategy at the library, or that was her title at the time. And uh, a conversation ensued, and I was talking about, well, I'm just kind of fascinated by how this opening up of the library has suddenly um, unlocked a very different kind of activity than it was probably intended, or was it intended? And we were talking then about ultimately what became a kind of an exploration of the library and how it's being used by people um, around Wi-Fi. And we did a kind of user research um, study. We went and talked to a lot of people. I measured the kind of signal strength and looked how it correlates with people using it. People were sitting in all kinds of places that they still weren't supposed to sit from an architectural point of view, but because the Wi-Fi signal strength happened to be really good there, they just sat there anyway. And there were probably hundreds of people going there. This was after the redevelopment. It shifted from, I think, something like 300,000 visitors a year to about 1.2 million visitors a year. And some huge proportion of that, I don't know what proportion, because we couldn't really separate it, was to do with the Wi-Fi availability. And so on, so on, so on. We then, I think, ended up quadrupling, or helping the state over quadruple the amount of wireless access points, thinking how it mapped onto the curation, the collections, ultimately, the core business of the library, if you like, which I think in Queensland is along the lines of preserving Queensland memory, which was really interesting in terms of understanding how this Wi-Fi activity, being about sometimes consumption of knowledge, but also production of knowledge, people were sitting there making things, was then as valid a kind of cultural experience as writing a book or making a magazine. And that was hard yards, actually, working with library staff, I have to say. Uh, Hopefully no one's watching the live stream in Queensland, but um, <laughs> uh, a fair chunk of the library staff were quite resistant to the Wi-Fi users. Thinking, why, why would we be spending public money on people coming in and using Facebook, for instance? And we had to work through with them how that could be used strategically, not just to increase numbers of visitors to the library, which it did do, and that was a good thing, but how that did then connect to the programs of work, how it gave them a potential future audience, to use your term, uh, how it connected to the curatorial activities, how it began to shape the library work as a physical thing. Um, and that, that ended up being, you know, pretty hefty kind of strategic work of the library and ultimately led also to something that Seth and I worked on together, The Edge, which was a new offshoot of the library deliberately around digital culture. So, yeah, it was sort of a fascinating series of accidental <laughs> Things and the library wasn't particularly prepared for these hundreds of thousands of extra users they were getting necessarily, but it was a good thing. And we had to then figure out, well, how does this map onto the idea of what a library is in the 21st century? It wasn't immediately obvious to me or them how that would happen. But we worked it through together over a few years, and I think it's been a really, ultimately, it's a fantastic test case because it's people go there even though they have the internet at home. This was kind of the breakthrough when we did the research. Huge numbers of them had the internet already. It wasn't that they were going to the library because they had to use the internet, you know, that was the only place they could use it. It just was the nicest place to use the internet in Brisbane, by far in a way. It was, you know, on the banks of the river in this beautiful building. And it was then linked to all of these other things that were around the cultural centre. So 
Um, but that was a story we had to construct with the library, with the library's help. And how do you think that experience then mapped into later work that you've done with University of Glasgow and, and Barangaroo? Mm. I mean, so what we do is basically uh, human-centred design work. So that, that was very kind of observational work. And again, I was basically taking pictures of something that I was then trying to understand through taking pictures of it. Um, and we do ethnographic work around that, and it's the same uh, with the stuff I do with unions and stuff, or uh, around urban developments. Often those things are either led through an organizational lens that doesn't necessarily have the best idea of people as people, instead of kind of units of human, if you see what I mean. <laughs> um, or an urban development point of view tends to be oriented around buildings and infrastructure, doesn't, again, focus too much on often on the actual the human stories or the human characteristics or the cultures of a place and so on. So we use, all we're doing really is using well-tried and tested techniques which are common to a lot of design practice, also common to a lot of other things like sociology and ethnography and so on. And uh, in doing so, we're helping shape the stories that the place tells about itself. You know, we're kind of understanding then, again, what is a campus? What do, why do people come to a campus? Um, increasingly, you don't necessarily need to come to a campus to experience a lecture, you can do that online. So, there must be some other reason for making a campus at this point. There are those good ones, but they're different to if we were making a campus in 1980, where you sort of had to go to the campus in order to go to the lecture, in order to graduate. And, um, and so, we're trying to uncover those potential applications and stories. And I think it, you know, we take a very similar practice across whether it's a library or a bigger urban development, you know, the equivalent of documents here or equipment, um, as a way of bringing the, the people into the, into the picture, into the story, and then being able to build around that. I'd like to dwell on that just a little bit, if we could, to kind of bring you up to where you're currently at with the work that you're doing with Marcus Westbury around the uh, Collingwood Arts Precinct. And there, obviously, you're engaged not with buildings and not with glamorous towers as Barangaroo, but you're kind of dealing with the bits in between buildings, laneways, and, and bits of public realm. How, how, how have you then shifted in, in, in how that approach might be played through? Yeah, I'm more at home in the unglamorous laneway. <laughs> Um, than the glamorous towers of Barangaroo. But in a, in a funny way, again, we're sort of trying to, even in the context of something like Barangaroo, which is a big showing development in, up the road in Sydney, um, we're trying to bring out the essence of what might make a good city, and it's probably not shiny towers, to be, like, to be fair. It's probably much more akin to a laneway, something far more accessible and uh, generative, you know, something full of possibility. Um, for, because it's accessible to a wider range of people in different ways for different applications for things that we don't quite know what they'll be yet but it's a, a laneway is an amazing infrastructure is what Melbourne's uncovered in Australia for um, generating new things it's a, a fancy word would be an incubator but thankfully it's not an incubator you know, it's a laneway um, so at CAP, at Collingwood Arts Precinct, uh, it's fantastically unglamorous in the best sense. You know, it's like it's a jumble of buildings loosely tethered together, awkwardly. Um, it's got this amazing 1920s technical college kind of patina to it there. It's got, you know, untold numbers of people have been making things in there for decades. 
Um, and so what we did was sort of relating to the building, but not architecture. We, we were in there before the architects actually sitting here about this time last year, bloody cold. In the building, we sat there for five days and we just talked to people, the kind of people that would be in Commonwealth Precinct when it opens. So you can't always interview the people that are using something if it isn't there yet. But you can interview the kind of people that will be like that. So, you know, for instance, one of the people that <laughs> Um, but we talked to you know local design firms or um, you know someone around the corner or someone in one of the coffee shops. We just got them in and said, "Tell us about how you do your stuff. You know, how, how do you get to how do you get to work? And when, when, what time do you leave? Where do you go? What pubs do you go in? If you want something printed, how does that happen? If you want to hire a graphic designer, who do you how do you you know put a message out around that? And you're trying to uncover then the networks that make a place. And the buildings are you know the buildings are kind of not the point in a way. The building um, unless you're a developer or sometimes an architect, it's never the point. The building is there to enable something else. And we're trying to then find out, well, what is that something else? What, how does creativity happen? That's to do with networks or um, tools or resources or uh, relationships. And that's something you can start to map out and, in effect, design. Um, it's not designing in a fixed static sense, like designing a glass. You know, it's more like... Uh, Designing a series of relationships that could then generate something else. It's probably akin to the ABC, you know, when you're making uh, media, but also you want the audience to make media, or you, you guys both do. It's also presenting cultural artifacts to a public, but also bringing the people in also to create culture in the same kind of space. So that's all we're doing at CAP, is just sort of understanding the way that people make things, or create things, or talk about that. And then thinking, oh, you need a tool for that, and you need that to work a bit like that, and you need the Wi-Fi to do a bit like this, and uh, everything's got to be on wheels, because you never know when you might need it. So how's that going to work? Oh, you need a store code for those things, and how are we going to do the, you know, it's really mundane stuff, actually, like booking systems. But they're kind of fantastically, um, you can get that profoundly wrong. One of our working tactics was the un-university. You know, CAP should not work like a university in this respect, like booking something out. <laughs> Difficult <laughs> in this building. I know, well, you know, the work's going all right, obviously, but it's just, uh, imagine you want to borrow something. What's the simplest, fastest way you could do that that still works versus the most bureaucratic way that, you know, <laughs> may or may not get in the way. It's going to be very diplomatic about <laughs> sitting in a university. <laughs> Um, maybe off, off, off that, I might pull you in, Priscilla, to maybe talk about perhaps this, um, this idea of what research and development actually looks like in, in the ABC. I mean, it's, it's not something with we, which we expect um, to be emerging. And, and I suppose we understand about these points of innovation and we understand about... ABC iView, and, and I suppose superficially we're seeing a different type of public realm to those that Dan is interrogating um, and similarly being facilitated from. So I'd, I'd sort of like to understand from you really what R&D looks like for old auntie um, <laughs> as she kind of lurches um, into the 21st century. Sure. Well, oh, is this on? I don't know. Thank you. That sounds better. <laughs> um, well, I guess 
the ABC has, I guess, for, long, for a long time, it, it has tried to be, it's been responsive to disruptive technologies, but has been comfortable with, I guess, the broadcast outcomes. So for a long time it was radio, and then for a long time it was TV alongside radio. Um, and then along came the internet, and then along came mobile and, and social media, and ABCs had to be, I guess, very fast as um, in being able to respond to that. Um, but I guess we're seeing a rate of change that is, I guess, it's exponential. So the faster things develop, um, I guess, with technologies like, well, I guess it's not a technology and such, but things like artificial intelligence mean that we have to think quite differently about how we create media and how we make that accessible to the public. So our job, I guess, the people in the ABC are working, I guess, to kind of quite immediate timeframes. So you've got your journalists who are filing stories every day. You've got your, you know, um, chief of staff in the newsrooms, I guess, thinking a little bit further ahead. But it's never much further than the three-year-ahead kind of funding period of the ABC. Um, so our job at R&D, we're quite a small team, when we eight, eight of us, um, um, struggle across Melbourne and Sydney, is to, I guess, um, help help prepare for the decade ahead or at least kind of try and bring our content makers and our strategy people in for, I guess, that discovery exercise so they can start planning um, and start experimenting with some of the um, technology in its emergent state as it currently plays out. So an example of that being... Um, virtual reality. So there's a lot of excitement around um, the potential for virtual reality. Um, a lot of the content makers in the ABC are dying to kind of try and see how they can, I guess, um, tell news in different ways and transport their audiences to places that they wouldn't be able to experience. It's a very different um, process of producing um, a film or producing a story. Um, so we are, I guess, the kind of key... Um, people in the ABC that think about, well, what does that mean? Um, how go and work with content makers to actually go out in the field and test it. Um, so, yeah, our R&D group was responsible for producing ABC's first 360-degree video VR experience. So that's the type of work we do. Okay. Um, so let's just tap into that a little bit. Uh, I know that you've done work in ideas about autonomous vehicles and this mm -hmm. notion that people can watch telly while they're not driving their car. <laughs> Some of us might That's check email. Yeah. Yeah, but um, <laughs> How do you conceptualise that within the, I suppose, the, the remit of the public broadcaster? Okay, well, um, actually that, that point about the autonomous vehicle and we'll all be um, actually just kind of using it as a, as a um, another lounge room and to consume media, it's quite a popular idea that seems to have kind of taken over our idea of, um, you know, what, what will become of media in that space or what will become of media is that we'll be doing the same things as we do in our lounge room today in an autonomous vehicle. What the interesting um, part of as vehicles become more autonomous is, um, we thought, the kind of the connected car space where um, the car is connected and, um, you know, it's going to be a long while, probably over 30 years until we're really going to see autonomous vehicles in 
Australia and our job is really well, what's the stage in between now and then and that's really your drivers will still need their hands on the wheel and um, they'll prim primarily be using an audio experience so radio isn't going away yet the difference might be that we're able to use our voice to ask for content we might be using our voice to you know today people are using Siri to control um, their music playlists, for instance. Um, so how would an audience member ask the ABC for their morning briefing in the morning um, using their voice? So that's kind of the, the area, I mean, the autonomous vehicles, it's almost too soon to tell exactly what the reality of that is, but we can start, I guess, anticipating the in-between stage and experimenting with voice activation. So that's, that's, that's where we look. The, um, it's just beyond the three-year, it's the five to ten-year frame, yeah. frame. And I mean, it's, it's often harder to predict the near future than it is to predict and adapt to the, the far future. Yeah, but what you can do, and I think it's what Dan was talking about, is um, you can look at well, what are the... Um, how people engage in today with media. So like Dan was talking about, we do a lot of contextual inquiry research. So user research, we're going into people's homes, we're seeing how, they, how they're using media. Um, a project we did last year was around the future home. So of course, um, when we think of media in a home today, we think of a lounge room and a television. Um, uh, but when we went and explored what are people actually doing today that's surprising to us, it's, well, they're using media in the bathroom. <laughs> so, in, in a way, um, you know, they're taking their mobile phones in, they're playing podcasts, they're um, taking their iView in and placing it behind the vanity basin so they can continue watching their streamed TV from France. So, you know, they don't want an interrupted media experience. They want it to kind of follow them as they walk through the house. They want it um, to be responsive to the people who uh, they're sharing the room with. And, you know, they're lucky if they get the bathroom to themselves and they can have the media take over their bathroom. So that was a, that was a surprising element. We, we use um, today's routines and rituals um, as a starting point for inspiration to think about, well, then once we know the behaviours and we um, set those alongside some of the technologies that we think are going to be important, then we can start generating ideas with our content makers and sometimes um, building prototypes of them. So with the future home, we talked about bathrooms, we actually built a, a smart mirror um, that could respond to a, um, the, the person who's standing in front of the mirror um, and, you know, um, provide news headlines or potentially um, this idea that there might be sensors detecting um, this, your physiological data. That's an opportunity for the ABC in terms of the type of content we make. So could we make health content that relates to the person standing in front of the mirror? So it's, it's showing different opportunities, not well, just as in, for... as in you need to lose some kilos. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that to you, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on to Seb, off that one. <laughs> Seb, Seb, obviously, um, in the manner in which you're beginning to evolve at, at Acme, um, the 
really these kind of notions about the shift in the uh, way in which... How are we guys working? Are you on? Yeah, okay, very good. Um, I'll start again. So the thing at the Cooper Hewitt, Mm -hmm. um, we saw these various discussions about the the nature of the Cooper Hewitt pen. Sure. And it would be really great if you could maybe contextualise where the notion of the Cooper Hewitt pen came from to build on this idea about how you might begin to become more predictive of how people behave within, within the public realm. Sure. So, I mean, um, the Kirby Hewitt's the Smithsonian's designed museum in New, New York. And in 2011, when I moved over there, I'd just come from the powerhouse in Sydney. Um, and we'd been doing a lot of work at the powerhouse around making collections broad, broad, broadly accessible over the previous decade and doing a lot of work around uh, tracking users, doing user research about the way people behave in the con- context of a uh, museum visit. So the powerhouse, of course, the science, science and uh, d- d- uh, d- design museum. So this was a museum that got a lot of families to it. Coop- Cooper Hewitt on the Upper East um, side of New, New York in Carnegie's old house didn't get a lot of families to it. Um, so I came, came in, Bill Mogridge was the director at the time who hired me, and much like Priscilla's work, we were thinking about what could the museum be. This was a when I when I arrived, the museum had just physically closed for a complete re, re, redevelopment, and this was this moment where we we could say, well, what could that museum experience be like if we could change all of the things within it? So we're working uh, with a media media design firm called Local Projects, who had just finished the 9/11 museum, doing the media for the 9/11. That that also done a lot of really in, interesting participatory work with museums in the previous few few years, and we got them to pitch uh, pitch uh, us some some ideas around how we could make the collection portable and that museum visit useful beyond that themed moment that you're in. So, you know, we, we all know that um, you, when you're making a decision to go to a museum as a parent or as a uh, citizen, you set aside an amount of time for that oh. visit. And much kind of like, um, you know, I've just returned from J- Japan where I've been going on roller coasters and things like that with my kids. Um, you know, it's, it's that time is designed to optimise your spend in a theme park and in a museum, it's your cultural enrichment or whatever. But it's probably the gift shop as well. Um, but it was this notion that what if that time in the Cooper Hewitt, which was pre- previously about 45 minutes, could be, could be extended beyond that and make the collection, which wouldn't fit in, fit in the building, available to you beyond that visit as well. And this has been a dream for many historical museums and science museums for, for years, um, that why can't the collection go home with you? And why can't the impact of a visit extend beyond? Now, for art museums, it's a little bit diff- different because the stuff's precious, apparently. But for other um, museums, they're cultural repositories of civic, ma- civic material. So it's that sense like a library. Why can't I take all the stuff, stuff away? So the pen uh, became a nice in- interface for taking away the materials in the museum. The form of the pen um, was nice because we were trying to, to communicate that the design of the museum 
was about making you a kind of designer. So when you come into the building, every, you, you, you buy a ticket and you get a pen. And the pen does those things, you give it back on your way out. Every visitor, like at Mona uh, in Tas- Tasmania, gets offered one, they take, take, take them, they use kind of them, they return them. But the pen also, because of its physicality, um, has a sort of it has a disruptive effect on the con- con- context of the museum visit, which, which doing the, ob- the observational work in the early stage, 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 stages. This is 2011, 2012. So, ev- so everyone's still obsessed with their mobiles, uh, their museum self, self, selfie moments sort of start starting up. So people are using their phones in museums, and that's that's aw- awesome. We love that. Um, people are picturing themselves in the museum, but their hands are full, right? So what if we could give them this pen that would make them put their phone in their pocket but still have the utility that their phone has in terms of recording that visit? So that's what it did. Uh, It was a huge three-year project. We designed, so a local project came up with the concept. We worked with a whole bunch of different firms to design and manufacture the pen. Um, And it's been hugely successful. It's changed the visitorship. And it's changed the way people behave in the space. So that 45-minute visit became a two-hour visit, uh, which is kind of interesting. Different demographics of visitor. I think in the first um, year of use, some something like four million things were collected uh, from visitors, which is a lot. Uh, you know, think think about the number of things that people visiting museums take photos of that aren't themselves, and, and four million is a lot of those. Uh, so, you know, it was that way of thinking about what we wanted that museum visit to be like and then change, changing the materiality of that visit so it created that future. And, you know, there's obviously designing the system around that, batteries, all that stuff with the pain, um, all of the stuff that Dan thinks about all the time. He's doing some work with us about some other things at the moment around, like, power, like power. Power is completely a pain. Um, the systems around this, we were working with a firm called Telart um, on designing the interface for the ticket staff to pair the pen with the ticket. So you think that's kind of a simple thing. You can buy a ticket, there's a cash, cash register, but suddenly that register's got to talk to this other device called a pen to write the ticket code to the pen or something like that and then the user of that device isn't the visitor, it's the front front of house staff. So in the first two two months, we did a huge amount of work after, after we launched, re, re, redesigning the interface for selling tickets to reduce the amount of time re- required to pair a ticket with a pen. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's all this sort of complex system that emerges after you change that environment. And I think that's what's really changed, that sort of experience to design in museums previously, was about exhibit design. Mm. You put on a great exhibition, and now it's actually designing the entire building that the ex- ex- exhibition's part of, and all the bits around that, you know, from mm. the social media and the web experiences to the mobile experiences to the cafe experiences. So it's, it's becoming more like designing a theme park. You know, that's kind of a, you know, when we, in the museum world, we're not allowed to say that. Museums are not theme parks. But, but, but there's a lot of things we can learn from a theme, theme park. We're even down to the queue time. Mm. You know, there, there are apps you use in the queue. So that's one of the things we we're talk, talking about it, um, doing at, um, uh, at Cooper Hewitt was about creating a queuing app 
which would have games and those sorts of things that you could play while you're waiting for experiences. Of course, I go to J Japan and I'm in the queue for the neon kind of Genesis Evangelion virtual reality roller coaster a couple of weeks ago, and there's an app that you play while you're waiting, and the app gets you in the anime mood to like you know go in this VR experience, and it's the actual ride is about like 45 seconds long. It's incredible. But you've waited like an hour in the queue, so it's queue, queue design is kind of the thing. So, you know. And I prob probably we all remember um, those old video games in the 80s. You know, I had my Commodore 6664. You put the cassette in, and the best, the best games had a little loader game, so whilst you waited the 20 minutes or an hour whilst the game loaded, you're playing another game. You know, it was kind of cool, so, so it's that sort of thing. So fast forward to Acme. Yep. Um, now you're in this difficult situation because suddenly you're in this. Um, you've shifted from artifacts, you know, millions of artifacts stored away, and you're trying to give people access to them. And now you're in this very different environment back in Melbourne, where you're dealing with the kind of nexus of film and media and gaming and uh, audio and. How do you then shift in terms of the mode towards a different way of reconsidering, if you like, what the artefact is and how you provide people with a wholesome engagement with that artefact? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, we, we just received some funding from the uh, state government in the budget to do the stage, 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 stage one of a major redevelopment, which will see the building trans tra transform a lot, which is... A very exciting moment because Netflix and Stan and Steam and PlayStation, these are our competitors, but they're also our friends. The ABC, you know, like, why would you come to watch the first episodes of Drama X that we do a pre-screening of in our cinemas when you can just stream it at home? So what is that experience? What's different about being present with other, with other people um, what is different? What can um, what can we use the physical space to do, and how can we make that media accessible when you go home, in and accessible through a new lens? So it's 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 an interesting one for us because we're not working with scarcity; we're working with ubiquity, albeit in a, a quite difficult rights environment in Australia. And, you know, coming back from the states where fair, fair use was very prominent. It's interesting returning here to hear the debates going on around that now. But, but it's, it's that piece that I think is an interesting moment for us because we're moving to a museum of evaporated things that you can get anywhere. A museum of ubiquity uh, rather, rather than a museum of scarcity, which, which makes us quest, quest, question how to design a building to op optimise for that and optimise for the impact of that rather than just having the stuff. You know, it's, it's not about the ownership of stuff, it's a bit like that shift, have, having also worked in music and stuff for years, that shift from own, own, owning physical music to stream, streaming all your stuff on Spotify or supporting bands through band, uh, Bandcamp. It's quite a radical shift. Mm. Um, and so how do you, what is the purpose of the building in that space? Mm. And not only the purpose of the building, but also perhaps the interfaces that allow you to access the material outside of the building. And I know Acme have done a, a lot of work in just trying to understand how you digitise a collection that's already digital. 
and, and what the impacts and opportunities of that actually might be. Yeah, I mean, the digitisation piece is, you know, a challenge, a real challenge. And I think but, but there's some exciting de developments with machine and learning for visual search now, which is making accessible parts of media, not just the entire thing. So I was talking to my colleagues today about, you know, going into the, that old video shop and you'd see all the, the video slicks in the v v VHS covers. Um, that's kind of the art, art museum model of displaying a database of stuff. But for us, you know, what you actually want are each individual scene on each of those tapes. And those are now becoming more retrievable and accessible. And that's, that's fine for linear, linear, linear media. But the complicating factor that we have, of course, is the interactive media and video games. There's not a beginning, a middle and an end. And those scenes can appear in any order. And then if we talk about multiplayer games or, or these sorts of things, then sometimes those moments don't, don't even exist. So lots of challenge, challenging stuff. <laughs> and I guess where we are at the moment is in the initial phase of scoping how we might, 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 might address that and thinking in that five-year timeline, what's that like in the future? And what is different about coming to a building to experience that? Because I think the Cooper Hewitt experience was very much about giving a purpose to this old mansion house on the Upper East Side. That, that arguably, you know, once all those things are digitised, the entire Cooper Hewitt collection was digitised while I was, while I was there as part of the work. And so everything's de digitised. So what does it mean to have an entirely de digitised museum? Why, why does the building exist? So we're in a similar situation with the current museum in that we're looking at the collections of film, TV and video games that are increasingly available in your home. So what's the purpose of the building? And there's a lot of stuff you can't do at home that you can do in the building and putting a shape around that. And then, much as libraries are becoming these places without books or places with better Wi-Fi or these sorts of things, it's all about experience kind of design, much like a paper, except mm. not a paper. Well, that, push, <laughs> that pushes us nicely into, into Ewan. Um, so Ewan, obviously, in your role, which has now been in for, for a couple of years and, and really has the mandate to try and talk about what architecture and design means in a different context, but also you, of course, are operating within the constraints, perhaps, and the opportunities that the NGV presents. And I'd be interested to hear from you, really, how you felt that you'd established your presence as a curator of design and architecture within the NGV, but also then how you've witnessed the phenomenal transformation of the institution from something that was quite closed into something that was has become incredibly public. Well, um... We started in, um, I started working there before Melbourne Now, about a, a year, so the exhibition Melbourne Now, which, which was at the end of 2014, to try and, and with, with uh, several other curators who were invited in to, to curate parts of the exhibition to try and, I suppose, build an interface that didn't exist, because historically the NGV didn't really address design, didn't address architecture, um, and it had a very, a, a very much more conservative um, view of itself as an institution. It felt much more closed. Um, 
So new directors came, and part of the objective of Melbourne now was to probably re-establish the, the um, and disrupt the kind of the relationship between the, the institution and the city, and the relationship between the institution and artists and, and the audience. Um, and it was very successful. And what was interesting from that and the scale of the audience, it was a big free show. It was the biggest show the interview had ever done. Um, I think they had 750,000 people through the show, so it was huge success. And it also very much um, articulated that audiences were very interested in design. And so a conversation started from that about well, what what would that mean at the NGV going forward? Um, and I worked on a looking at a design strategy for the institution, not just collecting design and commissioning design, but if the institution wanted to be a gallery that could represent design and architecture, then I mean, the simple terms were where you have to then, design and architecture should pervade everything that you do. You can't be an institution that talks about design and shows design and then have bad design everywhere, <laughs> basically. Um, so we embarked on, and that was, I mean, that, it was sort of a simple bit of work and it was logical and it made sense because they came off the back of Melbourne now and they understood that. And we've been through now the la over the last couple of years. Um, I mean, setting up a curatorial department, which opened in 2015, was an outcome of that. But actually, the first work that I was involved with, with was the retail business. So, um, a business that had struggled in, in, a, in a busy gallery, which is sort of unusual because you've got a captive audience. We cut stock in half. We redesigned the stores. We rebranded as the energy design store. We stopped importing products that you could buy from any shop, any you know the same stuff in every museum everywhere in the world. We commissioned much more stuff, and and, and actually that's ongoing, and um, it's transformed that business by 150%. I think in the last financial year, we then started looking at the brand. We went through a rebrand um, quite quickly again. And stuff like online and digital. I mean, we had a situation where when I started there, the NGV website you couldn't view on a mobile phone. Um, and, and that probably is emblematic. The, the web process was, it was very, it was a big cumbersome process with too many people involved who couldn't agree on what a web, they thought the website was meant to present the whole collection, everything in the building, when in fact, if you, you know, flip that, it's actually how did people just find us? How do people, people just know where to come? And we had a small team of, of three people work on a prototype website that was built in about two months internally and cut out a whole load of people who were sort of slowing down the process. And, and that website is fundamentally the basis of where we are now. Like it just, we, the, the, the directors understood the idea of the prototype was very important as a narrative, you know, so we started prototyping things. Let us build something, and you can look at it. It's not going to cost a lot of money. Everybody liked it, so it stays. And we keep iterating, and we've done that with several things. But then across commissioning furniture for the gallery, how do we deal with architecture? And it's really just sort of cascaded, because then audience responds, and then it's every show, every label, every interface, every touch point in the gallery. Now we have designers on, and there's a team of 20 designers internally um, who... Uh, come out of industry, multimedia crew, all of that stuff. Um, in terms of the department, it was really, I suppose, in terms of carving out a space curatorially, I mean, interestingly, I had the challenge where there was no gallery space available for about three years. 
for major shows. So we had a big empty garden, and I was like, well, can I have the garden? <laughs> so we then started the program of commissioning architecture in the garden. And I suppose we've done a few shows, but in, interesting what is emerging, and we'll, we have a very big show at the end of this year, the Triennial, and it's actually the role of the curator now in a, we don't have a strong collection of contemporary design and architecture, so rather than just collecting what is around the planet, and, and if you imagine trying to get your head around chairs or lights or you know design, what do we buy? How do you really do that? Is it encyclopedic? It's such a huge amount of work. And upon talking to lots of other curators around the world who are doing this in institutions like MoMA and others, it's um, Actually, it's more about asking questions to work. So our strategy is to commission work, to set briefs for designers and to try and help people to realise new work that actually allows us to have a conversation about the society and we live in today, the issues that we deal with. And interestingly also, we don't have a kind of siloed... It's not a design and architecture department that doesn't speak to others. We're working with photography, we work closely with contemporary art and it's... It's um, Indigenous art, we're commissioning designers to try to figure out how do you do Indigenous, non-Indigenous design collaborations properly. It's comp complex. Um, but so, I mean, the, um, it's very exciting. I mean, the audience growth in that period, I don't think, I think is a direct consequence of all of those things put together and, and the great content that the, the directors have brought in. You know, they've but they've thought through shows that allow us to use design more. I mean, the Hockney show is a good example. It was nothing to do with me, but such a huge amount of design thinking in that show and also getting one of the world's most prominent artists to just look at 10 years and look at his, his hidden grappling with the new technology and embracing and understanding and then really um, nailing it, many people think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the the... I still think there's a lot, there's a long way to go. I mean, and we, we deal with things like, so we're digitising a collection of 70,000 works. Um, you know, it costs a lot of money. How do you do it? How do people access it? We're looking at VR, um, not only for artworks, but then people accessing collection. Um, and I suppose it just becomes this ongoing thing. And what drives it is if people use it. You, you know, that's the, the... The mood there is also very much about... Um, the institution is owned by the people of Victoria, the artwork is owned by the people of Victoria, and so you're really, we're thinking very carefully about how to get more people to come. It's been a huge investment in how do we get children into the gallery. Yeah, tell us a bit more about this, you know, the fantastic stuff that happened with Ai Weiwei in the kids' gallery, the um, brilliant stuff with Victor and Rolf. You know, I think there's been a really well thought out focused strategy to understand how kids can participate and have fun. Yeah, well, I mean, the simple argument is if kids come and are comfortable in the gallery, they will always come back. So if you're thinking long-term, you want children to feel like it's their place. And this, I mean, I walked out of the gallery yesterday, it was with a school group waiting outside with the teacher and all the kids sitting around in their T-shirts and trying to sit still. Um, and the teacher, all I heard him say was, now, what did I say? Okay, remember, it's, do not touch. <laughs> <laughs> all the kids repeating. And I was, that's really problematic. But there is a, 
There's a reality in that. We don't want everybody fumbling with paintings, but you have to create moments where there's that freedom. Mm. That strategy of, of, with kids really is Andrew Clark, one of the directors, is very passionate about that work, and with Tony Elwood in Goma, and they had the same strategy there. And it's it's um, what's exciting is that the level of detail in a kids' show should be better, as good or better than the level we put into a show for adults. And like, it's not a secondary experience. Um, and for parents, you know, things like where do you park prams, all of that, there's a lot goes in, into it. They're actually more expensive shows to do. Um, and then that shareability and that idea that you can share your experience becomes very important and they've developed you know, their own proprietary stuff to enable that to, to happen. Um, but the, um, you know, it's just a, they're, they're, I think these are all logical decisions and we look at institutions around the world and um, we've looked at Seth's project, we, look at, you know, we go and look at a lot of stuff, you're looking at how people are dealing with buildings, um, wayfinding, you know, food, the food offering, and then, and then it's the Friday night concerts, the Sundays, the, the festivals, the book fair. It's just more, I mean, actually, it's just more and more and more um, layered. And um, as a design strategy internally, it means that it, the whole place has to, silos have to dissolve because it doesn't work if you don't, yeah. if you can't um, move, would be really nimble. I'm, I'm interested in the way in which Priscilla, listening to that as a set of examples, whether there are synergies with what's happening um, in the ABC and the, the degree by which your work is able to have a holistic impact on what the ABC is doing and how it's doing it, how it's developing its content and its interfaces with the public. Um, yeah, well, I guess the idea of... Um you know, we we have been hamstrung by, I guess, the divisions and the silos of the ABC. There's been a recent reduction in the number of divisions. Um, we're now part of um, what's called the audiences division, um, which is all around, uh, I guess, identifying through audience insights where the gaps in audience engagement are, and it it makes sense, I guess, for the R&D in that because we often take a pan-organisation approach to thinking about audience and I mentioned that uh, project we did around the future homes. It wasn't, um, we didn't have content partners from one division. We were always thinking holistically, what is it? Um, for instance, when a person wakes up in the morning and they um, you know, pick up their phone and are engaging potentially with uh, audio content, it might be radio, it might be a music playlist, or they might be looking at ABC News, they might be looking at, you know, Daily Mail. <laughs> so we're not really interested in thinking about, I guess, the, um, the, the silos within, within the ABC. We're interested in thinking about, yeah, the whole day or the whole week experience of our audience members. Um, and I guess the kind of key push, if you're a newsmaker, you want the ABC to become part of a daily habit. Um, but if you're a TV drama person, you're, you're just keen for them to, you know, um, watch the, the series on, on TV or maybe on IV. Um, so I guess, yeah, our approach is, yeah, the audience um, behaviours 
come first, the audience needs their drivers come first, and then whatever, um, thinking about, I guess, the moments in the day where the ABC can connect with um, a member of the public, whether that's at home, whether it's in their bedroom or bathroom, or whether it's while they're in the car, or in the public. So, yeah, I think we're thinking holistically in terms of those um, those moments in the day where we can make an impact in delivering information when it's most relevant. So, picking up on this notion of experience, and maybe I'll throw to both Seb and Dan within this piece, um, we, we seem to hear a lot about experience design. We seem to hear a lot about customer experience, user experience. You know, are we really that obsessed with experience? Or is there a, a different word that we could actually be using to describe the things that we know as being controlling the way that people access information? <laughs> what a question to ask an experience designer. <laughs> Um, yeah, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I told you, I do booking systems. No, it's, uh, but I think, uh, yeah, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that maybe in, you know, 30 years, we'll figure out, oh, it was that all along. Um, I don't know if there was this debate about architecture, I mean, sort of 3,000 years ago. <laughs> Piling up bricks, what should we call that? <laughs> but, so, at some point, my work is about interaction design, which is the design of touch points. So, you know, set, talking about the ticket stuff and the, the thing, or, you know, when you talk to Amazon Alexa and say volume equals 10 and then it doesn't work because it can't hear you anymore because the volume is at 10. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a touch point. And then when we arrange those touch points, uh, we usually talk about service design actually now, which is sometimes an awkward word because service implies a commercial service. I don't think it need necessarily do so. It's better said, said, you know, when you're walking into a gallery or a museum, there's a range of touch points you're interacting with, including spatial architectural ones, which are entirely fundamental, um, as well as uh, the stuff behind the ticket counter, as well as the, the cube and, yes, the technology. Um, and then broadening out further, we talk about strategic design, actually, so it's about, uh, three, three types of design within two minutes. Um, so strategic design is when you arrange all of those things together and it begins to transform into something else and you're using design, as you were talking earlier, to ask a question as to, and what is the library at this point? Now that we did Wikipedia, so you don't need to go there to look stuff up anymore. Um, and it sounds like the libraries are thankfully still full of books. To my mind, I think libraries should um, entirely incorporate books quite fundamentally but there are other things that it also does. And so, yes, designing a library now is different to designing it in 1980, when you would build it around newspapers, books, magazines, and some events, and so on. Just as it asks a different question about what's the ABC at this point, actually, the BBC, as we were talking earlier, and a lot of our work there was then into, well, hang on, what is a broadcaster now that people can also make media, and they're consuming it in numerous different places, and also media from other people, not just broadcasters, and all of these things are happening. So that strategic design is using design to flush out what the possibility is, what is the different thing about it, how do we talk about that? So um, experience kind of runs as a thread through that, for sure, because you're trying to understand, well, what's the... In order to understand what a museum should be in 2017 or 2020, 
um, experience is a very useful, super tangible way of dragging it down to the ground. You know, it's, you, you end up otherwise I'm quite happy to write high fluting essays about what libraries are, as you know. But at the same time, we need to understand well, how's it bloody going to work? You know, that's an experience question. And it turns out that's incredibly useful. That tangible series of questions about what are you doing in the library helps you understand that bigger question. So I find it very useful. It's otherwise, you know, you get caught in a world of um, policy or strategy or vision, all of which are great, but uh, they don't necessarily help you deliver the thing or make the thing or run the thing or actually think about it in a useful way. And you have to drag it down to, you know, as you know, how are you going to find it? As you said, how are we going to find a museum if I can't see it on the phone? You know, that, that actually forces you to think through properly, to my mind, what the thing is. So that's why we use experience a lot, I think. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's also about state change, that you, know, you, you can observe the experience as it is now, your vision and your mission de 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 determines the kind, of the kind of state you want that to reach. And then you can start to think about the experience that you need to transition into, which is about designing space, spaces. It is about brand. It is about the, the buildings. It's about the, the multi-sensory nature of those physical spaces too. And I think often in museums, um, we have a lot that we can learn from retail. We have a lot we can learn from theme parks again, you know, this sort of sense that... You like a thing? Well, I've been visiting them in the last <laughs> month and I'm kind of... I, I like how they work and I, I, I like the difference be, between visiting Universal or D Disneyland in Japan and then visiting the exact same thing in Florida. Mm. And it's something about the people. <laughs> and, you know, it's about the cultural piece around the way those spaces function and the way people expect those spaces to fun function and and the cultural piece around that I think is fast fascinating the way visitors to say Universal in Florida expect the staff to behave is quite different from a visitor to Universal in Osaka mm -hmm. that the, there's that cult, 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 cultural piece and because museums of course we can argue aren't themed theme parks some more than others, depending on the exhibition, whatever. Um, you know, that, that there is a sense that people bring a perception of what that museum should be like. And, you know, as Ewan's saying, that, that, that you can change that brand very fast. You can change what chil chil children bring and expect from that space in a matter of years, which is amazing. Um, and, and that's that transformative piece, but it's it's really about seeing seeing the people in that space. And I think museums have been particularly bad at that historically. They've, they've been very focused on the stuff they collect and the way they present the stuff, rather than the people who come to visit the stuff and use use the the stuff. I think libraries went 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 through that change in the eighties and nineties as um, they saw the library as a service rather than as a repository. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. You know, obviously, there some more than others, but there's a tension there. Yeah, with the curation and curatorial instinct, yeah. sometimes it seems to be, well, we're building a collection and it's yeah. just a curator, and this is the, the, old, the more traditional piece of speaking about. And what has shifted there is really interesting, the understanding that it's 
far more complex than that. And people, all kinds of people, are building collections all the time. That's right. Yeah. Um, so it's far more multi-dimensional than it was before. You and you made a big claim on the. Um, you did. Um, talking about the idea of the NGV belonging to the people of Victoria. So is is there then implicit in that a kind of Melbourneness? about the experience of going to the NGV, picking up on what Seb was saying, mm. but it, it, or, or is there something else that's going on within the, the ways in which that experience is curated, programmed and promoted? I'm not sure about Melbourne, so I mean, maybe. The, um, there's a couple of interesting things going on there <coughs> relating to the previous point, which is... If you talk about experience design, experience design can be about how people how people who run the place behave. You know, what type of experience are you designing, rather than getting hung up on it all being about technology or physical things. And um, we've definitely there's definitely something going on at the NGV which I read. You know, you're talking about front of house staff. All those people are basically run the place. The security guards. The, there's a kind of tone of voice which has become really. Very, which I think is a Melbourne thing, but I think it's the difference between eating out in Melbourne and eating out in Sydney. No offence to Sydney. After 10 o'clock at night. Well, you know, even <laughs> there, you can do it. But, um, you know, just that kind of um, sense of um, engagement with the, with I'm here because I want to be here, not I'm here because I'm, I'm on my way to being something better than what this yes. is now, and so you have to treat me this way. So um, that, I think... Is very important, and when you're talking about like kids um, and whether that can change a brand, I think a child's experience can change a brand in a, in, the, in one experience, like for them, um, and that. Um, so I don't know that open. I mean, it's it's certainly a, a very interesting period in that there's an openness to, to investigating that, and. I think in terms of the theme park, I mean, we shouldn't be afraid of cultural institutions being theatrical and being pro bringing drama to... I mean, art, the art for... You know, you're talking about historical art in particular for the average child or teenager is probably not that interesting because of the perception of it. And it's the way that you present it, the theatre that you wrap around it and... And the idea that all art is contemporary in the period it's created and some things that might seem boring just because they're old actually are highly provocative and interesting things and through that we can have great conversations about the society we live in now. Yeah. Mm. Um, so in terms of Melbourne, I don't know, I mean, I think I would hope that what the NGV has managed to achieve and is, and is going to consolidate more is a sense of being open to exploring stuff being it's not it's a bit it is a bit of irreverent it's uh, the tone of voice is is um, it I hopefully it doesn't appear arrogant it, it feels open and it feels engaged with the world in a way that I think for me as a curator I I worry that institutions are not opinionated like we need cultural institutions in the world we live in now the problems facing us in the future we need Places that are the kind of you know the institutions that hold culture or can host the neutral places that can host conversations about the future. Mm. You need to be opinionated. You can't just passively let people interpret artwork, and that will become more and more evident quite soon at the gallery. That sense of I think them finally being confident enough to 
be opinion be really opinionated as an institution throughout the world. Can I add that? That's um, and that gets to this matter of you know why can you make a building? I think actually around that stuff as well because that's that all of your art works they pop me. You know you could look up on the internet obviously it's all over it, but to see it in with the theatre and drama of a place there, and drama not just meaning you know, a heightened experience all the time, also the moments of repose and crescendo, landscaping that through the space, and then contextualising it, opinionated you know, um, curation of something next to another thing, a juxtaposition, which the internet tends not to do so naturally, as e.g. filter bubbles, etc. Um, you know, that's something that uh, the building as a holder for that experience can do in a very profound way. And it's incredibly important, just the same way you saw an watch a football match, it's different to watching it on telly, if you're actually at the game. And just by people still go to the theatre, despite cinema, you know, all of those things still exist. And therefore they have this much more profound meaning to do with context and experience and space and curation, as you just described it that the internet doesn't naturally do by itself. So I think that, that's really interesting about underscoring what you're talking about here, I think. So do you think there's a sense of responsibility set to the, the manner in which ACME is framing a discourse around media and gaming? Very, very, very much so. I mean, that's we're becoming more con- confident, I think, in presenting that now. We're also going through a bit of a slower rebranding. Um, I think that's we're now we're now positioning ourselves as a national museum of film, TV, video games, digital culture. That framing is something that is quite different to saying we're the Australian centre 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 for the moving image, and, and and how that plays out is not in logos or it's, it's in what we do and the tone. So so if you look at look look at the new website we've just launched, you know there's a section. For museum, there's a selection. There's a sec- section for cinemas, and there's the ideas section. And the ideas section is where the rationale for what's programmed in those cinemas, the rationale for the sort of exhibits we're doing, and the sort of stuff that goes on in the museum part, starts to flow through. And I think we're starting to coalesce that. It's going to take take a little while. Uh, we've got a, a great exhibition on women in uh, video games um, launching uh, in June, which will be really great. And we're starting to take more of a position about stuff rather than just show stuff. And you're starting to see this also a bit in the cinema programming and also in the television programming. So we've started to not only do talks about television series but doing the first two episodes of the new series of X or Y. And, And this is requiring new relationships with the sector, the production sector, um, and our co- co-working space is about trying to reframe those relationships with makers who are commercial. You know, we're talking about artists, but also production companies, special effects com- com- companies, virtual reality com- 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 companies. The VR commissioning series that we just launched, the Simon Morton Virtual Reality Commissions, are about ex- using art to explore the possibility space of VR in a way that it isn't just 360-degree video. Which, which, which in the which in the media space it predominantly is because it's cheap, it's fast. That's three hundred and sixty video. It ain't VR. Yeah, well, it's a type of VR. <laughs> but but to push that further further and to ask what what might VR mean for us mm. as a society, artists are incredibly well placed to push that for, for, forward. And so, what you'll see in December when the first of those modern commissions goes live 
is hopefully something that pushes our conceptions, the sector's conceptions and the public's conceptions of what VR could be, as well as us doing VR festivals where we have consumer-grade VR, say VR video games, PlayStation VR, the Vive, and those sorts of things, <coughs> running alongside side, side that, which are driven by much more um, immediate commercial con- 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 concerns. So we, we're able to balance... If we can get the balance of that right, I, th- I think we can do the public role we're supposed to do, uh, which is to be that potentially provocative... Um, Voice that look that pushes mediums forward. It's saying, where could this be? Priscilla, just to pick you up. Oh, I just I just think it's interesting hearing you talk about um, the work that you're trying to do with VR because I think that's the challenge for the ABC as well. It's obvious you've got all of this talent and telling stories at the ABC, but our problem is distribution of that content and making decisions around that and. My colleague Amy here can tell you a lot of stories about that, but um, uh, I think it's um, an opportunity because you are a um, you're a destination to guide people, guide users through the experience of VR and putting the headset on for the first time and um, seeing how it works and asking them questions and then you know further kind of exploring it and pushing it in different directions just because of that and that's something we can't do at the ABC. We have to think about how we distribute it much more broadly all around Australia. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, I'm interested in the uh, idea that VR still requires a physical place, and I suppose personally I'm less interested in VR and I'm more interested in the R. And the work that (laughs) you do really, for me, begins to perhaps manifest a a reconnection with physicality and and a benefit of a digital realm and what that delivers to the physical. Yeah, I think it's... um, Yeah, I mean, I think VR is fantastically interesting in a way, in its own place, but I think the, the the R thing is really... A big focus for us because you can also um, secrete moments of digital within physical now in interesting ways. You know, so physical objects can begin to the internet shoved in the back of them so they can kind of behave in interesting ways, but there's still a physical um, condition which I think is far more complex because of you know architecture and other things enables you to um, do things that you can't do. It's a pure media experience. So when I was at the BBC, we were also thinking about how do we also get into supermarkets and sports grounds, and, <laughs> and you know, do we start making museums and things as well? It was also um, a discussion because pre-funding cuts, um, uh, because it's a more sophisticated um, way of dealing with experience. Is that word again? But because you're dealing with physical and digital and spatial and social and temporal, and uh, you know, dealing with all of the conditions of experience at the same time. So what, what we're interested in now is this so-called sort of Internet of Things idea, which is that you can begin to have um, wayfinding, we're doing a lot of wayfinding for instance, that has a physical component, like you know, Exhibition 3 is this way, or Auditorium this way, which is unchanging unless the Auditorium moves, which it rarely does. Um, but then you have a, a little sliver of digital underneath it, and it might be very, very 
deliberately constrained and stripped right back, the most minimal thing we could do using e-ink and things like this. Um, which are very, you know, it's kind of a really, it's not a great display if you look at it as a display, but it's a wonderful thing as well at the same time for displaying a very simple message, as in, you know, Mad Max starts in four minutes. So, auditorium this way, Mad Max starts in four minutes, you get a physical sign which is, works, no one has to pull out their phone, you don't have to worry about cross-platform nonsense and all of that, it just works. People can be head up and experience in the space, talking to their mate, not noses down in the phone, things like that. But at the same time, there's a, there's a little tweak of digital component, which does Mad Max in four minutes, or Tarkovsky in two minutes, obviously, if it's happening. Uh, that's the little smidgen of sort of digital that is something that you couldn't just do with purely physical, because it wouldn't be possible, you know, scalable to do that, to have that kind of thing. And equally, you could use it from a curatorial point of view in interesting ways, as Seth's been talking about, or you all have, I think, which is, again, breaking outside of the obvious thing that they said the internet does. It's like, if you like Mad Max, you might like Mad Max 2. Like, really? <laughs> but, you know, if you like Mad Max 2, you might like Tarkovsky. That's a much more interesting leap that you might do in a curatorial context. And the, the digital component then again can do that, but physically in the space. So a school group can all be experiencing it at the same time, they have a shared experience. Um, and you know, mixed reality, augmented reality, is also super interesting because it's sort of beginning to also play with that. We're just also, what we're really interested in is, when, you, when you, your phone is a very individualizing interaction, uh, by putting something in space, it enables a, a kind of a group interaction or a social interaction or a civic interaction. And that's an interesting thing. The phone's great at some stuff, but that other thing is more complex. And that, that's more interesting to us. Yeah, I think we're also trying to figure out, we're still, we're at the later stage of figuring out the manners around our devices too, and that, that yeah. very one-on-one -on -one thing with our phones is, exactly. I think we're getting a bit sick, sick of them. So. Yeah. You know, where that heads now, um, you know, do we go through another vinyl phase? You know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like that sort of thing again. So that's one of the interesting pieces in, in the physical shift. And museums are great spaces to experiment with. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm afraid we are becoming physically challenged by time. Um, and I'd like to uh, ask you to join me in thanking our panel. Thank you all for coming along and giving up your Friday night to listen to some people talk about design. Uh, uh, my understanding is that we will be promoting the URL of this evening uh, uh, via Facebook and via the Master of Design Futures website. And if you'd like to pick that up and share it with your friends, um, that would be very useful. Uh, and, and also um, enjoy the rest of Melbourne Knowledge Weekend. Uh, and I hope you can go along to um, see some other pieces of information distributed in a very direct and physical way. Thank you. <laughs>